Welcome to the One God Report. We have a special two-part edition coming up in which we will examine the evolution or the development of deity of Christ and Trinitarian theology in the centuries after the time of Jesus, in the 100s and 200s and 300s AD. In this session, we'll focus mostly on the 100s AD and see if there's any Trinitarian that's writing at that time, or anybody who believed in the deity of Jesus, or who thought that Jesus was God. And then in the second session, we'll pick up the history from around 200 AD, and going all the way through the 300s AD, and looking at a couple of the main church councils that occurred in the 300s AD in the 4th century, the Council of Nicaea in 325, and the Council of Constantinople, in 381. I'm very excited, and I've asked Dr. Dale Tuggy to lead us through these historical periods. Dr. Dale Tuggy served as professor of philosophy at the State University of New York at Fredonia for 18 years. His PhD is from Brown University. He's authored about two dozen peer-reviewed articles and book chapters relating to the Trinity and other topics in analytic theology and the philosophy of religion. For instance, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article on the Trinity, and his book called What is the Trinity? Thinking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Since 2013, Dr. Tuggy has hosted the Trinities podcast, which explores theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His podcast and articles can be found on his webpage, trinities.org. Let's get to it. Dr. Dale Tugley, welcome to the One God Report podcast. Thanks for having me, Bill. Really our pleasure. I'm a regular listener to your podcast. Our topic today, tell me if this is a good way to put it, would be the development of Trinitarian doctrine or the evolution of Trinitarian doctrine in the centuries following Jesus Christ. Is that a fair enough title? Well, I might have to stop you right there, Bill, (laughs) (laughs) because when you say Trinitarian doctrine, I think the most proper meaning of that means doctrine having to do with the triune God or the tripersonal God. And such a thing goes totally unmentioned in the 100s and 200s and the first half of the 300s. So if Trinitarian just means having to do with the Father, Son, and Spirit, okay, then that, that, that makes sense. But I mean, if Trinitarian means having to do with the triune God, there is no material that has to do with the triune God in the first roughly three centuries. That's what we want to talk about. That's what we want to find out about. Mm -hmm. Because I know as a Trinitarian person in my past, I was not very informed about early church history and actually not very interested My understanding was that from the time of the Gospels, people were Trinitarian, they believed in the deity of Jesus at least, and then somewhere along in the early 300s AD, somebody comes along and says, well, no, Jesus isn't really God, and then the church leaders, they had a council to decide, no, actually Jesus really is God, and then from then on, everything's been more or less rosy. So my my understanding of church history, I will say, is limited, and I think I understand now I understood an incorrect version of what was going on. I mean, it's interesting the way you put it. Evangelicals tend to just focus on the deity of Christ and kind of skip over this triune God topic. And so they, they kind of equate the two. 
you know, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, what's the difference really? And then they just basically, uh, their apologists will find uh, second century guys, people writing in the 100s, who refer to Jesus using the word theos or deus in Latin. And they say, see, these people believe in the deity of Christ. And uh, that's very, that's, uh, it's either ignorant or dishonest because the, these people that call Jesus God don't mean that he's the one true God. They mean that he's a second and lesser God to the one true God. Okay. And they're me, quite let, explicit about that. Let's plan to do something like this. Mm-hmm. Let's take the first couple of centuries, maybe the first century, maybe mm-hmm. the second century, the 100s AD mm-hmm. into the 200s AD leading up to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, and then following the Council of Nicaea to what some people call the Cappadocian Fathers and the second big church council, the Council of Constantinople in 381. Mm -hmm. So what's going on in the second and third centuries AD? That would be the 100s AD and the 200s AD. What are some of the main features going on in church theological development? Well, one big thing that's happening is the one bishop movement is starting to develop. The idea that uh, the only way to get a handle on heresy is for there to be one head honcho uh, Christian guy in every city, and you can't baptize or preach without his permission, and it all kind of comes down to him. This is developing all across the 100s. It doesn't exist, I think, in the early 100s. And then as the the 100s go on, they're more and more aggravated by Gnostics of various kinds. And they think this is the way to clamp down. And who are Gnostics? Oh, boy. Gnosticism is a notoriously impossible to define term. But it's really a type of religious movement that tried to hijack mainstream Christianity. And uh, it's usually based around obtaining some kind of esoteric knowledge that really you're divine. Um, and it usually features a Jesus that is uh, not a real human, but some kind of intermediate heavenly being. Bottom line, Gnostic religion is, it's a diagnosis and cure that's totally incompatible with the New Testament gospel. They don't really know where it comes from. Uh, there were Gnostic type ideas around before Christianity. Uh, like in Judaism, and they do pick up on certain Greek things like disliking the body and the material world and thinking, you know, what's really real is is the non-physical realm or maybe multiple realms. But, I mean, I think the mainstream Christians were right, and the, their leaders, people like Irenaeus, I think they were right to reject Gnosticism as a total departure and corruption of the apostolic good news. But they, they, a lot of the Gnostics would have their own uh, canon. They would reject a lot of the apostolic writings, and they would come up with their own gospels and things like that, which are always counterfeit, you know, not, not written by the person they say they're written by. So, yeah, the One Bishop movement is, is a big development, and this comes back to bite mainstream Christianity later, I think, when this class, this ruling class of bishops decides to seize for itself the power of determining doctrinal questions. But that doesn't really happen until, really, until the 300s, uh, until that first council called by uh, the Emperor Constantine in 325. So theologically and Christologically, what's happening? Well, 
for, I think, probably a bunch of different reasons. There starts to be speculation about Jesus's pre-existence, but some of these early post-New Testament sources aren't interested in pre-existence and don't seem to mention it or presuppose it, and others do. There's been some good work on this by an independent British scholar named Thomas Gaston, which uh, I'll, I'll let you know what it is. You could put a link to it, maybe. But the, the really important thing to know about the 100s is our, we, have, we have basically no information about what ordinary Christians thought. So all that survives are a handful of a couple dozen writings from a certain type of elite writer, somebody who's very Hellenized and interested in Greek learning and culture. And uh, we just have to kind of infer what most Christians thought. And it seems that probably most of them weren't very theological. They would just kind of take the statements of the New Testament at face value and not go into a lot of speculation about Christ having two natures or God being triune and things like that. But the big developments, uh, and in some way, I think the most important development that happened in the 100s was the arrival of logos theories. Logos is the word in Greek we translate as word in the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And logos theories, they go really back to Plato's Timaeus which was a dialogue written by Plato in the 300s BC. And Plato thought that the ultimate source had to have some kind of intermediary in order for creation to occur, that God is just too transcendent, too uh, separate, too apart from the world to do it directly. So first he has to kind of emanate out of himself uh, in this dialogue, Plato says, a being which is neither created nor uncreated. And then this thing, the craftsman, the demiurge, it's usually translated, that, that thing uh, is able to make the world directly. Um, so you see some speculations along these lines, even by Philo of Alexandria, who is a Jew, a very Hellenized Jewish writer living around the time of Jesus, but in Alexandria, Egypt. He talks about God interacting by means of his his logos, but he also has a bunch of other things he calls powers of God. It's very unclear what he actually thinks. Anyway, by the t- if you go to Christianity now, the big the big influence, I think, is the early uh, Christian philosopher and apologist Justin Martyr, so-called because he was executed by the Romans in, I think it was 165 because he refused to renounce Christ. So they beheaded him and a bunch of his friends. So middle of the 100s yeah. he was living, yep. Yeah, the ideas seem to come in around 150 or thereabouts, maybe a little bit earlier. So the idea is that God, the one true God, is just too transcendent to have directly to do with the world or to create directly. Um, but that's okay, because... God just uh, spoke out his word, and then the word was able to do it directly for him. The idea is that God brought into existence when it was time to create this logos, and then the logos created for him, basically. Justin also speculates that, you know, it says God can't be seen, and so any, quote, God or Lord that's seen in the Old Testament really just turns out to be this logos. So he calls the Logos a second God and another God. 
but it's clear that he's, you know, lesser than the one true God. He, he was brought into existence just when it was time to create. Mm-hmm. So if anybody says that Justin Martyr was a Trinitarian, would he be misinformed to say that? Yeah, br- brutally misinformed. Um, also, if anybody says that he believed in the deity of Christ or believed that God became incarnate, right? Because if God is the one true God, then he thinks it's impossible for God to become incarnate. So it's the lesser God that became incarnate for Justin Martyr. Yeah, that's exactly right. So in his famous dialogue with Trypho the Jew, he says, he says, I have shown sufficiently, uh, this is chapter 127, I have shown sufficiently that when God says, and he's quoting scripture, God went up from Abraham or the Lord spoke to Moses and the Lord went down to see the tower which the children of men built, Tower of Babel, or God closed the Ark of Noah from the outside. He says, you should not imagine that the unbegotten God himself went down or went up from any place. For the ineffable Father and Lord of all neither comes to any place, nor walks, nor sleeps, nor rises, but always remains in his place, wherever it may be, acutely seen and hearing, not with eyes or ears, but with a power beyond description. Yet he surveys all things, knows all things, and none of us has escaped his notice, nor is he moved, who cannot be contained in any place, nor even in the whole universe, for he existed even before the world was created. And then he continues, How then could he, God, the one true God, converse with anyone, or be seen by anyone, or appear in the smallest place of the world? So yeah, what he's saying is that God can't be incarnate, but this lesser God can. And in fact, anyone who actually speaks to humans or appears in any way to them must be this lesser God. He mentions uh, in another couple of famous passages that we honor, to paraphrase, basically we honor God most of all. And in the second place, we honor this Logos. And the third place, we, we honor the various angels. Oh, and then there's the Holy Spirit. He weirdly puts the angels ahead of the Holy Spirit in one of these statements. So he believes that there are three uh, beings that maybe in some sense you could call divine, but the one true God is not the Trinity. The one true God is the Father in all of Justin Martyr's writings. Now, I said a minute ago that Justin said that God brought this second God into existence. That's his language, by the way, second God. That God brought this second God into existence when it was time to create. I think that's his view. That's what other scholars say as well. But the waters very quickly get muddied because the Greek term logos, it can mean word or speech or reason or message. It can mean a spoken thing, but it can also mean the thought that's expressed in the word. So logos can mean thought or word. And uh, actually, I think that's why John uses it in his prologue, but that's another conversation. So what they started to say was, well, actually, it's just like the Logos moved out of God or came out of God. So they think eternally God had his Logos, that is his reason. In other words, eternally God is intelligent. And then he, he speaks out this Logos, and now it's a being alongside of him that can do his bidding. Mm-hmm. But it had an origin in a sense. It had a transformation. Is that fair to say? Yeah, if you think it had a transformation, I mean, I think that's really kooky um, because it's hard to see how something which is a divine attribute could be a being 
a, a living acting thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, suppose uh, I pointed at your one one of your children and said, you know, that's Bill's sense of humor. I mean, you would think I meant that your kid's sense of humor is much like yours or something like that, or they got it from you. But you wouldn't even imagine that I said that your sense of humor turned into a kid. Mm-hmm. Like, it just seems like it's obvious nonsense. But I think some of them thought that. Uh, others who were better at philosophy, like Tertullian, they're pretty clear when that... When does he live? Um, he's active in the late 100s and the first two decades of the 200s. People like Tertullian that are better at philosophy, they're pretty clear that, yeah, okay, God eternally had his logos, his reason... And then at a later time, at a certain time, this second being comes into existence. But that's not a transition in in the same being. It's just that in some sense, God expressed his wisdom in bringing this other one into existence. So it gets it gets real convoluted. A lot of them are unclear about whether this uh, Lagos is eternal or not. Uh-huh. Will a guy like Justin Martyr later on be condemned? say, in the 300s AD, we'll get to that period, will they later say, no, this guy is wrong? Or, yeah. they, or will they not even address him? They, w- they would, in the 300s, pillory him as a, quote, Aryan. What happened was, really, I think, origin of Alexandria uh, established the speculation or made popular the speculation that the father eternally generates the son. So now there's no two stages of the Logos. There's not the in God's mind stage, and then the now there's a being stage. Uh Eternal generation. Yeah, just eternally there's this Logos, and eternally it exists because of God. So it's like eternal causation, basically. And this is origin. He's in the middle of the 200s, is that right? He died about 254, so the first half of the 200s, roughly, he's active. Um, so he, and you know, you maybe can find this view in Irenaeus, although Irenaeus is unclear about this, like he's almost, un, like he's unclear about many other things. So, so they, they get rid of the two stages and, um, then you just have eternally God is bringing into exist or is sustaining in existence, uh, this second God. And, um, they tend to shy away from the second God language later on, although Origen uses it. Um, he talks about another God and a second God, and he means this Logos. Mm-hmm. But later on, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound right to Christian ears. They tend to shy away from it more mm-hmm. toward the 300s. Let me ask you, just recently on a podcast, I heard a claim that a man by the name of Ignatius, apparently in the 100s, late, you know, late 1st century, early 2nd century, uh, somebody said that he's a Trinitarian already. Is that a fair assessment? You already answered that, but why would that be an incorrect assessment? No, it's it's absolutely not fair, and nobody should nobody should say any pronouncements about Ignatius without alerting you to the horrible historical problems that surround him. So uh, we have like one manuscript of his works. It contains a bunch of letters that everybody agrees are fake. Um, and then there's the letters that a lot of scholars now want to say are genuine. So everything we have from him has been through the forger's hand, everything. And we don't know that this guy did not also mess up what are supposedly his genuine letters. Uh, he supposedly is right in the early 100s, 
but he really just pounds the table really heavy in favor of the one bishop system. And either he's the earliest guy with the one who's like the big fanatic for the one bishop system, or this is just obviously later material that's being cast back into the 100s for some polemical purpose. So it used to be that a lot of Protestant scholars would say, nah, Ignatius's letters, you can't trust them. They're either forged or they're hopelessly corrupted. Nowadays, they like them because they think that, hey, here's this early guy showing that he believes the deity of Christ. But all that means is that he he says things like uh, he calls Christ our God and refers to him as God or a God. And in the second century, in the 100s, lots of people are referring to Jesus as a God, but they don't mean him to be the one true God. They mean him to be a second and lesser God. So when you look at Ignatius's letters, such as they are, supposing they're real, you basically have New Testament sounding parts where the one God is the Father, and then oh, and then there's this also there's this Lord Jesus. And it sounds like they're two different beings. But whereas in the New Testament, they're very reticent to call anybody but God God. In other words, they almost always reserve the term Theos for the one true God, the Father. He's not like that. In fact, he seems to be kind of pointedly calling Jesus God a lot. And there are a lot of passages that when I read him, he sounds like a monarchian to me. And so I wonder how many times has this been corrupted? Well, I should also mention there's a, there's a version of his letters that are obviously corrupted by a quote Arian. They're obviously from the 300s. Um, and then there's a shorter version that they call the middle recension. And just because it's not as bloated with, you know, later Arian statements as the longer version... A lot of people leap to the conclusion, well, this one must be right. The problem is that polemicists would engage in warfare by forgery. That's why you have all these fake gospels, you know, the gospel of Peter, gospel according to Thomas. They, they want to advance their religious views by forging an, author, an authoritative source that supposedly is from an earlier time. Okay, but some of, some of the passages in Ignatius sound monarchian, so... When the Logos... Can you say what is Monarchian? Yeah. Monarchians, I understand, basically be to be mainstream Christians who rejected Logos theory and tried to come up with something better. So the Logos theories... Sorry. So the main Logos theorists, especially Tertullian and Origen, so these are first half of the 200s mainly, they tell us in a couple of places that ordinary Christians don't like this theory about the Logos. And they say, you know, we don't believe there are two gods or two creators. We think there's one God and one creator. And they said, we uphold the monarchy of the Father. That was kind of their slogan. And this is a difficult subject because all of these sources are now lost. All we have are the Logos theorists dumping on them and saying how stupid they are and obviously wrong they are. But historians trying to sort all of this out call them, they call some of them dynamic monarchians and some of them they call modalistic monarchians. And the difference is, I think really can be explained in terms of John 1. So, and this was, I think, something they were concerned about. The, the Logos theorists came along and said, hey, this uh, word that was with God, it's, it's a second God. And it was God. Yeah, it was a God. Sure. 
the dynamic monarchians, they just thought that the word was like a divine attribute or power or divine action. And they think this was expressed in the man Jesus. So the dynamic from the Greek dunamis, power, basically they think God's power was at work in Jesus. And, you know, he says in John, it's the father in me who does these works. And, you know, he, he, he does these things by the finger of God, by the Holy Spirit. It's a way of saying the same thing, right? The other monarchians, historians call modalistic monarchians, and these are more obscure. It's, it's not clear how many of these there were. But the accusation that people like Tertullian make against them is that they just collapse the father and the logos into the same person. So then the father died on the cross. Different mode. The, they, they call him a son father, like he's the father of himself and the son of himself, which is all nonsense. But what both of them are doing is they're getting rid of the second God. The dynamic monarchians are saying, hey, this second God, no, there's no second God in scripture. Really, you have the Messiah who's empowered by God to do amazing things and to teach divine truth. The other ones are collapsing the second God and the first God together into the same God which seems like an obvious, terrible mistake uh, to think that the father and son are the same person. So as of about the year 200, I still think you have a lot of ordinary Christians that don't care about this stuff. Um, but among the elite, you have the Logos theorists, but they, they basically tell us that theirs is a minority view. And then coming in around the 180s and 190s and beyond, there are teachers reacting against Logos theorists who are called the Monarchians. And these are not like, you know, far out guys no one ever heard of. Like one of them was a bishop of Rome. And uh, so this was still very much in, in the middle of the mainstream of Christianity. Arguably, the Logos theorists were more kind of on the edge in, mm. in being sort of that Hellenistic. Let me ask you a little different question. Do you detect any anti-Semitism in these church fathers of the 100s and 200s AD? Were they embarrassed that Jesus is a Jew? Yeah. Did they emphasize that, that he's a Jew? Um, they run the whole gamut, really. Um, you don't see quite the level of like real virulent anti-Semitism that you see like in the 300s, but you see a lot of stuff that would make us uncomfortable. Justin Martyr, in his book, Dialogue with Trifo the Jew, he is really, really hard on him. But, you know, he's kind of merciless in his criticisms and really severe in his criticisms and, you know, criticizes them as fleshly and worldly and blind and so on. You don't get the kind of, you know, sorrow for, for the Jews as his own people like you get when you read Paul. The reason I ask is because... As well, much me, as you can see. make Jesus a pre-existent being, you lessen who he is as a human. Yeah. Yeah, so they tend not to say, like, really embarrassing stuff about, quote, the Jews. However, it seems clear to me that some of them are really embarrassed by the fact that their religion was founded by a Jew that got executed less than 200 years ago. By the Romans. And that, yeah, and that did not sound, that did not go over well with educated Gentiles. And the reason I think they were embarrassed is a couple of them uh, are capable of writing whole little treatises like defending Christianity and they don't mention Jesus. 
but which what really like they don't talk about the crucifixion and resurrection sometimes they're really willing to to wax eloquent about this logos because that is cool right and they and they speculate that this divine reason that came out of god is uh that by which reasonable men are reasonable somehow this influences all of us and particularly the great philosophers who they some of them kind of idolize like plato and some of the stoics um th- this this second god that's reason logos is what is responsible for all their wonderful profound insights now this sounds like something cool you can sell to an educated, you know, Roman polytheist, basically, or Greek polytheist. It takes the subject away. The, the Romans and Greeks did not like the Jews. They didn't understand them. They thought they were ornery and weird for not having idols and for not just giving a thumbs up to everybody else's gods. And um, politically, the Jews had revolted three times yeah, from 70 to 135. They had a reputation for being you know, warmongering, I suppose, or stubborn, stubborn and proud, I think, in their view. There's also a passage in Origin, which blew me away, and I'm paraphrasing, I can't tell you the exact words, but uh, when you really understand what Origin thinks about Jesus, it's kind of shocking. He thinks there was a man there, a human nature, yes, in the sense of a human being, and then he also thinks there's this logos, this lesser deity that eternally emanates out of God. And he thinks, you know, uh, before his earthly life, this particular human soul was very uh, virtuous and obedient. And so he kind of was joined to the hip with the logos. So they were kind of buddies, even in the pre-existence. Uh, but my point is there are two persons there. Period. Now they function, they might look like one to the outside observer, but there are really two. And there's a passage where he says words to the effect of, you know, he, he thinks he's one of the, you know, the truly spiritual, spiritually sensitive elite, and that most of the dopes of the world are just like fixated on sensory things. This is a kind of a Platonist elite denunciation of ordinary people. Basically, he thinks that, hey, Jesus is for the fleshly, worldly, sensual people, whatever, he's good enough for them. But, you know, the the real point of it is this logos that, that people like me are able to detect. So, I mean, he's kind of saying Jesus is a superficial part of God's plan, a superficial part of divine revelation. And he really does care a lot more about this second God than he cares about Jesus. We will stop there for now. I would just like to summarize a few things that Dr. Tuggy has said so far. First, in the AD 100s, we don't have any sources for what the average Christian believed. What we do have are some sources from elite writers who were heavily influenced by Hellenistic or Greek philosophy. These elites made a strong push for a centralized authoritarian church government led by bishops in major Roman population centers. Later, these bishops would vote to determine church policy and doctrine. Another main feature of the 100s AD was the emergence of Christian logos theories. Logos is the Greek word for word in John 1.1. 1 
in the beginning was the word. Logos theories were an adaption of earlier Greek philosophical speculations, especially of Plato, who maintained that the ultimate good or ultimate source was too transcendent, too distinct, too separate from the physical world to either make the world or have interaction with the world directly. Rather, the physical world was brought forth by a craftsman or demiurge, itself derived or brought forth by the ultimate good or source. Hellenized Christians began to speculate on the pre-human existence of Jesus and adopted this Greek idea of the craftsman. Jesus was, to an early church father like Justin Martyr, the pre-existent Logos, a derived second god, a lesser god, or a god with a small g, who was brought forth both to create and interact with the physical world. Still, the Logos, Jesus, according to Justin Martyr, was not considered to be the one true God, the Father, but he was a lesser creation of the Father. Not all church fathers agreed with Logos theorists, claiming there is no such thing as a second lesser God. Some monarchians, from the word king, held that the one God worked through the man Jesus. Toward the end of the 2nd century and beginning in the 3rd century, that is the late 100s and into the 200s AD, certain Logos theorists, especially Origen, began to speculate that the Logos didn't really have a determined beginning, but as part of God's thought or plan, was eternally generated. If what Dr. Tuggy says is correct, there was no such thing as a Trinitarian within at least the first 200 years after Jesus ministered on earth. The pre-existence and divinity of Jesus only started out as a lesser being brought forth by the one true God, an idea formulated in the backdrop of Greek philosophical speculation. That is, for centuries after Jesus was on earth, no one believed that the one God eternally existed in three persons. Rather, the idea of one God in three persons was a development that took centuries. In the next episode, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Tuggy, examining the theological developments in the 200s and into the 300s AD, and we will find out who Dr. Tuggy thinks were the first Trinitarians. This is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help others find us. And share the podcast on social media. The humble will hear and rejoice.